Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to what is going to be the last of our studies of the book of Hosea. Um, in case I forget, I'm going to try to say this again at the end, but, but just for schedule-wise, we are going to be off the next two weeks. Um, so the next School of the Word class is going to be, I think it's January 9th. Um, and that will be, I, I think they're going to do um, a discussion on prayer that week. Uh, and then Pastor Peter says, at this point, he thinks after that we're going to go into First John, although he did caveat it to say, uh, depending on where the Holy Spirit leads. So really, there's no telling. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be finishing Hosea this morning. I hope you guys have enjoyed this book as much as I have. I just feel like the next time that I open up Hosea in my own reading plan, uh, just just the themes and the major emphasis and and how how this book fits into the overall Bible. I feel like I just understand it so much better, even from my own study. Uh, and, and I hope that's true of all of us, that, that we just feel a little more equipped to continue studying God's word. Um, and I think that's kind of the goal. That's how I think about reading the Bible on my own, is, is I'm not trying to necessarily become an expert of any one part today. Um, but I'm trying to grow in my understanding of what God has revealed through his word over the months and years and decades that I continue to read and to study this book. So um, I hope this has been just one more step in that study, um, in that growth for you. Um, just a quick reminder, in Hosea, we are finishing what's really the last part of the big arc of God's judgment um, and his reconciliation. Remember, we've seen three arcs, the first one just in chapter 1. Illustrated by Hosea's family, God is showing how he has um, a broken relationship and he's going to judge Israel, but he's also promising abruptly that he will restore his people simply because that's what he is going to do. Then we see that again in chapters 2 and 3 with a little more detail, a little more explanation of what, Hosea, what Israel's sin is um, and what God's reconciliation is going to look like in the wilderness He's going to allure his people and bring them back to him. And then chapters 4 through 14 is a final big arc in that same pattern. Last week we looked at just chapters 4 and 10, which is all an explanation of Israel's unfaithfulness and how God's judgment is coming on them because they have abandoned him. Because even when he tries to heal them, even their repentance is light. They are fickle and they go right back to what they have been. So judgment is finally coming. That was promised in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the establishment of the covenant from the very beginning. Those promised promises of discipline and judgment have gone through and again and again and again. And now finally a final exile is coming. But the end of the book, chapter 11 through 14, has hope of reconciliation in it. And it's not simple. It's not, it's not actually even all promises of restoration. Chapter 12 and 13 are probably some of the harshest judgments in the whole book. But in 11 and 14, we get these promises that God is going to bring his people back. And beyond judgment, beyond exile, will be restoration. That's the final note on hope of Hosea, and that's what we're going to look at and focus on this morning. We're really going to study mostly 11 and 14. We've, we've talked a lot about the judgment last week, so I'm going to kind of skip over 12 and 13 and really focus on um, what is in these promises of reconciliation. And, and as I was preparing for this book, just thinking about how does this fit in, in, into the larger context, it, it made me think of 
um, it, it's sort of re- changing the emphasis on what God's relationship to his people is, is really all about. And I noticed this when I was reading fiction books growing up. Um, and, and spoiler warning, just warning, I'm about to give a, a pretty broad gender stereotype. So, um, but when I read fiction books written by men and by women, I started to notice um, that, that they tend to drive the tension in the narrative a little bit differently. Right? I read a lot of, of fantasy books growing up, so um, think of that what you will. But I, I noticed that all of these books, both men and women, had, had some sort of mission, some sort of thing to be accomplished. Right? Maybe there was a quest to go on. There was some sort of bad guy to defeat or evil to overcome. And then there was also relationships. As they went on the quest, there was people going together that, that developed friendships in different ways. Usually some sort of romance would happen uh, between the main characters, some of the side characters. And what the difference, so all of the stories had that, but I noticed that when a man wrote a book, it tended to drive the tension by, is the, is the mission going to be accomplished? Is the quest going to be successful? Right? Is the dragon going to be defeated or, or the good wizard defeat the bad wizard? Um, is, is, uh, is the ring going to be destroyed? Right? Um, th- this sort of external, is the world going to be changed? Is the mission going to be accomplished? That's what you were turning pages to figure out. Is that going to happen or not? And when a woman wrote a book, that was all still a big part of the story, but the tension tended to drive a little more in the relationships within the story. Is this quest going to drive these friends apart? Or this family? Is the mission he goes on going to destroy the, the family relationships? Are they going to be there when he comes back? Is the duty of this person to um, defend or establish this kingdom going to mean that they can't be with the person that they've wanted to be with, that you want them to be with as you're reading this story? And, and so there's a mission and there's a quest and, and the relationships are tied together. But what makes you turn the page, what makes you want to see what's going to happen, is this going to work out, tended to be a little more emphasized on the relationships. And what I think Hosea is doing is showing us that what, what we're trying to figure out, what's driving the tension of this story, what we're looking ahead and wondering what's going to happen, is, is God's relationship to his people going to be restored? That's what matters here. That's what God cares about in these stories, the relationship with Israel. Those external factors, they're real too, right? The, the kingdom of Israel it matters, right, as them being a blessing to the nations and, and God's place where he is seen as great and glorious. Whether God is recognized as the, as the ultimate God as opposed to the Baals, that matters. But what also matters and what Hosea is focusing us on is God's relationship with his people is driving the tension in this story. It's driving the tension within God himself, in this moment that he is driving to, to restore. So as we dig into these chapters, notice what is driving, so here, specifically chapter 11. Where's the tension in this book? So let's read through. I'm going to read this whole chapter. I'm actually going to stop. I think your note's saying I'm going to go to 12.1. I'm actually going to stop at 11 verse 11, um, starting in verse 1. 
When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in their up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bonds of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man the Holy One, in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Do you hear the relational language driving this story? We're going to break this down a little bit. And uh, one quick note, I, I know Christmas is coming up this week, and, and you probably heard that verse, out of Egypt I called my son. If you've been reading through Matthew and noting that Matthew is going to pick up that verse and, and use it to talk about Jesus. I'm going to come back to that. But put, if, if you're wondering how that connects, I'm going to come back to it later. So put a pin in that thought. Um, but, but the conflict in this, in this story really the conflict within God himself, his emotions about how he's relating to his people, right? And I think this sort of language, it's really back and forth, right? It's almost confusing to see. He seems like he's saying one thing and then he's saying another thing. But I think anyone who's had a relationship where you're dealing with someone that it's just continual conflict, continual problem, and, and you're not sure how you can even continue to relate to them and, and you're not sure how you can give them up, Anyone who's had a relationship like that, I think, should understand that these emotions sit together at the same time. Right? You hear that this is an ending with hope. God's saying, I'm going to restore them. I love them. I, I'm not going to give them up. And at the same time, in the middle, I'm going to judge them. The sword shall rage in their cities. We've just come off of a section 4 through 10 where God says they are going to reap the whirlwind. This is this, his love and his judgment are mixed together at the same time. And in the midst of that, you get this lament, right? How can I give you up, Ephraim? I'm the one who taught you to walk. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who healed you. I have been like a father to you. How can I leave you? And yet you are leaving me. And he's lamenting this moment. It makes me think of a book I've, I've read by Marilyn Robinson. She actually wrote a, a series of books. Um, and the second one and, and is called Home. And all of her books are, are very slow and very sad. And you really just sit in these moments for a long time. And she's really good at drawing out how situations and relationships feel. And this one is about um, a sort of black sheep son 
of a minister in sort of middle of nowhere, Illinois, and he comes home. Um, and there's no like hot conflict in this moment, but, but just who he is and how his father loves him just sit in contrast to each other in the whole book. It's very quiet. There's, he's middle-aged at this point. His father is sort of almost on his deathbed. And his father just can't reconcile himself to who this son has been. He's got like seven kids, and the other six are great. But he's at his home with this one son whom he loves and whom keeps going off on these just can't seem to come back, seems to be maybe doomed to, uh, doomed to predestined is really a theme of the book. Is he predestined to just continue on this life of waywardness? And his father just can't get his head around it. It's just this to exist at the same time. You begin to feel, how is this going to resolve? Can this even be resolved? These two emotions sit together, his love and his inability to accept who he is. And it, and it almost breaks this father. Like he almost, he can't handle it. It's too much for him. And what we see here is that God is feeling very similar emotions, right? Ephraim, you are bent on leaving me and I can't be okay with that. And judgment has to come and I love you and I can't give you up and I'm going to bring you back. And the only reason that one being can hold those, de- the depth of emotion together is because it is God and not a man. We could not handle this tension. But what this chapter is trying to get us to see is the depth of feeling God has in this moment. It almost sounds like God is indecisive, but that's not what's happening. right? God is not here trying to decide, am I going to judge them or am I going to forgive them? That's kind of the way we think about these situations. right? Is, he, he says, I'm, the sword's going to come, but, but then my compassion's warm. I'm not going to execute my anger. He, he's not really trying to get us to see, if you read the whole book, what is he going to do, right? Even the promises of restoration are they're going to come back, right? One of the reasons that that the prophets can be confusing when they sort of mix judgment and restoration is because they're really compressing a timeline into a two-dimensional page, right? We know if you read ahead that what's going to happen is that God is going to send them into exile and then he's going to continue loving them and he's going to bring them back. And, And the Hosea here is just, maybe he doesn't give him that amount of information or he's just not describing it that way. He, he's, he's trying to explain both of these things at the same time. And so it looks like you had this, this two dimensions that just get compressed when you read them. Um, so that's one of the reasons it could be confusing, but, but also because he's really not trying to explain what God's going to do. He's trying to explain how God is relating to this moment. And both the feelings of judgment and the feelings of love and continued faithfulness and a promise of restoration are existing in him at one time and creating this turmoil of a chapter. This is an insight into God's heart, what exists in him towards his people in this moment. And what we see is this mixture of emotions, of reminiscing about his child, of promising punishment, of grieving his leaving and reaffirming his love all at one time. And you see what the point we see is that the driving force of this story is God's relationship to his people. That's the tension. That's what needs to get worked out from chapter 11 as we continue to look forward and ask, how will God continue to relate to these people? 
And then we go through chapters 12 and 13. And as we've already said, these are, these are some of the hardest chapters of judgment. I think what you get from these chapters here between 12, 11 and 14 is that the devastation is imminent, right? If you had a question coming out of chapter 11 about is God really set on punishing his people, chapters 12 and 13 make it very clear. Judgment is coming. There's not a question about what God's going to do in the immediate moment, right? Chapter 12 um, I was just talking earlier. It's, probably, it's a complicated chapter. I'm kind of glad I get to do an overview and don't have to dig in and really try to unpack all that's going on in that chapter. Um, I think a summary would be Israel is being judged by the history that they have with God. God is looking back over how he is related to them and in relationship to that saying, you stand condemned based on how I have and how we have been relating over generations. And then chapter 13 is just a graphic description of the judgment that is coming. We looked at some of this last week. God says in 7 and 8, I will tear them like a lion. Chapters five, or verses 15 and 16 talk about children and pregnant women being destroyed. And this land is going to be devastating, as the invasion of Assyria would actually be devastating. There's no question that the curses promised in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are coming on this nation within one generation. It's very soon after Hosea gives this declaration. And then we come to chapter 14, where the clarity of the promised return comes to the fore. This is the final note of the book, and it's looking beyond the judgment to what God is going to do when he restores his people. So let's read this whole chapter. Verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His roots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their frame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. And the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. We don't know exactly when Hosea gave any of his uh, prophetic words. They're kind of here arranged for us to read, but you can kind of imagine this one being given as Israel is, is either under siege or actually being taken into exile. Right? Just imagine Hosea sort of, I picture him standing on a rock for some reason, just standing up on a rock, uh, speaking to people being led away in chains and saying, Return, O Israel. Take with you words and return to the Lord. This is a promise for them to take into exile. 
right? You're going to be judged. You're being taken away. You're experiencing the wrath of God for the sin that you have been committing. But here's a promise to hold on to as you go. Right, you notice those key words, you return, and I will, and the future tense, I shall bring them back. Right, again, it's clear, God is not saying this exile or the wrath is going to be avoided, but that on the other side of it, he's promising to his people, we are going to make it through this. And what I think is notable here, again, is the promised restoration is unconditional. Right, we noted earlier in Hosea that, that God's abrupt transition to reconciliation comes without any description of what Israel would do. And that doesn't mean there's nothing for Israel to do, right? This is a declaration for people to hear. The final words are, let the wise hear and understand, right? Let those who have ears to hear, hear what they're saying and live in this. So there's a declaration. Those who hear are to respond, but the picture of restoration the picture of what it's going to look like when God brings his people back is a promise. It will happen. I will bring them back. They shall live with me. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. Don't ask me to explain how we can be told to do something and God can promise that it's going to happen and both of those sit at the same time. We don't have time, and I don't know that I could do it. But just notice, they both sit alongside each other here. We are told to respond. God's people are told, listen, hear, respond. And God also promises by his own word, it will happen. You will come back to me. And the final thing I think we note in here is just that verse 8 sticks out to me. God's final word. It almost sounds like this is a play. And, and God's been one of the actors. He stepped into a role as the, the spurned husband or the, the forsaken father. And, and now he comes on for his last moment. And the narrator is going to close in verse 9 and declare what the audience should do to this. But the final words of God in his capacity as relational character is, Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? You hear the lament in this, the emotion behind this statement. It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Remember who I am to you. Remember how I've loved you. Remember I love you still. God is calling to his people, return to me. Not to my rules, not to a set of laws, not to a particular location, to me. It's the relationship he's after here. Where does this fit? This relational book talking about God's particular relationship to this kingdom. Where does this sit in the overall context of the Bible? The main thing we take away as we come to the end here is that the end of Hosea is not the end of the story. God continues to relate to these people. As they go into exile, we get the books of Daniel Daniel and Esther, and we see God continues to be faithful to these people. He protects them while they are helpless 
exiles, helpless prisoners, second-class citizens. He protects them from fiery furnaces, from lion's dens, from plots to destroy all of the nation by evil counselors. He continues to be faithful and love and preserve his people. In the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, we get the story that God does indeed bring them back to the land. The reconciliation promised in Hosea happens. And they come back, and they're given miraculously. I mean, can you imagine just sending these people back to the land? Like, what set of events would would it take for that to happen? Yes, absolutely, go back and rebuild your land and your temple. What? (laughs) Uh, they, They come back, and they do, and they rebuild, and they're given faithful men like Ezra and Nehemiah to lead them and and set them into... and, and lead them through that difficult moment, preserved miraculously from the nations around them who weren't happy about them being back in the land. We get the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which are written to the returned exiles. And we find not only does God continue to speak to them and encourage them to be faithful to him, but he continues to deal with them as they fail to be faithful to him, as they begin again to go back into this cycle of pursuing idols or or being just unfaithful to him, not remembering to build the temple, not prioritizing him like they should. He continues to speak to them. He brought them back knowing that this difficult relationship was going to continue to be difficult, and yet he sticks with it. And then ultimately we see in the New Testament that Jesus steps into this same story. I told you I'd come back to the connection of Matthew 2 and Hosea 11, 1. And this is a passage that's bothered me. As I've read through, I actually read a book to try to understand how does this work. Because when you read Matthew 2, quote Hosea 11, it sounds like Matthew is making up a connection. Right? He's sort of saying that there's a prediction here that when I just read Hosea 11 didn't sound like a prediction. Let me read this to you. Matthew 2, verse 13 through 15. Now when they, then that's they is um, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. Uh, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Now I read that and I say, I didn't think Hosea 11 was looking forward to a Messiah. But Hosea 11 was talking about that God brought his people out of Egypt in the exile. Period. Why does Matthew look at that and say, oh, When God brings Jesus out of Egypt, he's fulfilling Hosea. That's confusing. That makes me wonder if Matthew knows what he's talking about. But what I think was helpful is is to recognize that, that we maybe have a specific view of fulfilling. That's really about fulfilling a prediction. Right? We, we know that Hosea is a prophet, and so what we maybe initially think of him doing is making predictions about the future. Right, the, the, and, and we do get a lot of those, particularly in Isaiah, right, who's looking forward to the servant who will come, who will be pierced for our transgressions. These are, there are predictions in the prophets. But that's not the only way that something can be fulfilled, is to fulfill a prediction. 
It could also complete a pattern, right? And so what I think Matthew is doing is he's looking back and saying, Hosea was saying, God brought his people like a son out of Egypt to come and be faithful to him and to walk in his statues, and they failed. But he, then he comes and he sends Jesus, who follows this same pattern, who goes to Egypt, who comes out and lives before him in his way righteously and succeeds. That Jesus is the son that Ephraim failed to be. And so Matthew says, this is the same pattern. Do you see this? He's stepping into the same story. He's coming and identifying with his people and he's doing what they could not on their behalf. And that fulfills what God intended with his people. It's a different way. It's not fulfilling a prediction. It's fulfilling a pattern. It's completing it. This is the way that Matthew understood Jesus. And it helps us understand what Jesus is doing as he steps into this story. And you see that Jesus picks up on this very same thing. Jesus talks very relationally. He declares, first of all, the love of God, God's desire for relationship in the way that he teaches. Matthew 23, 37 sounds to me a lot like the end of Hosea. Jesus, before he goes into the city, says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The lament in Jesus' heart is the same as the lament in God's heart towards his people. He's giving us another insight, a picture, an embodied picture of how God has been relating to this story all along. And the way he tells parables gives us the same insight. Matthew 18, 12 through 13. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. That does not make sense unless you care about each and every sheep. That's not just a shepherd who wants to maximize the number of sheep or establish um, some sort of sheep kingdom, as silly as that would be. This sounds like the father who has seven children and is broken by the one black sheep who can't be reconciled to. That's the heart of God that Jesus is declaring. The same in the prodigal son. I'm not going to read the whole story, but it's the same picture. This son is unfaithful, goes away, lives foolishly, spends all of his wealth, and then is destroyed by the difficulties of the world. And when he comes back to his father, how does his father relate to him? His father doesn't care about the money, doesn't care about the name, doesn't care about even the family. He cares about this son. And he runs and he grabs him and he hugs him and he brings him back in and celebrates that this son who was lost has restored. The relationship drives that story. The relationship drives God's relationship to his people as much as any other thing we find in the Bible. And that's the way we see Jesus relate to individuals. His ministry is consistently relational. He's not just after building this big sort of movement. 
right? The way that he talks to the, the woman who's bleeding, right? In this moment, he's on his way to go heal a girl who is on her deathbed, actually has already died in this story. And he's surrounded by a crowd of people led by an urgent father with all of his disciples and everything. And this woman who has come to touch Jesus in hopes that he can heal her touches him and Jesus stops. And he sees her and he speaks to her. He cared about his relationship with that woman. Jesus has friends. The way he relates to Mary and to Martha Right, you, you get those stories in Luke 10, 38-42, and John 11, 1-42, when their brother dies, and the way that he speaks to each of them. Right, when he comes to talk to Martha, the woman who's probably the backbone of this family, who makes sure all the things are getting done, who's, who's got the, all of the, the plans and the organization and the house and everything organized, when he speaks to her, he speaks to her about what's going on. He speaks to her directly and clearly and, and back and forth. And then when he comes to Mary, this one who's probably just more in touch with the way this moment feels and is overwhelmed by the emotion of the moment, there's not many words. And it's with her that we get the picture, Jesus weeps. Jesus knew these women. He related to them in a way that shows he loves them. He cares about them. He got to know them. They weren't just pieces in his movement. They were people that he loved and cared for. When he returns and appears to people after his resurrection, he appears to individuals. Again, if he wanted a movement, he could have stood on the top of the temple and declared, all of you people who doubted me, don't doubt and believe, and started a movement. But he comes to Mary in a garden and speaks to her. He comes back when um, the disciples had all seen them and Thomas was absent. And he doubts that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He comes back one more time to speak to Thomas and says, Thomas, if you need to put your fingers in my hands, if you need to put your hand in my side, do that. Believe. Why does he come back for this one man? He didn't need him individually. Whatever he ends up accomplishing through Thomas, he could have done through the hundreds of other people who saw him. He comes back because he wants Thomas. He appears to Jesus, to Peter and restores him for his betrayal. Speaks to him in a way that reaffirms what he's doing personally in a setting that he understands. These are his friends. These are people that he cares about individually. And the heart that we saw in Hosea is lived out through the person of Christ. In his high priestly prayer, John 15, we get a lot of discussion about unity. Jesus wants unity among his disciples as there is unity among um, him and his father. But it's not only unity in those groups, but it's unity between them. Jesus is bringing us into the relationship that God has within himself, within the Trinity. And this is one picture of where he does it. John fifteen fifteen. he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. There's intimacy in this moment. We're sharing in the mind of God. He wants us not only to obey him, but to know him, to know his thoughts to understand what he's doing on a personal level. 
I think this is the picture that we see emphasized in Hosea and we see drawn out through the whole rest of the Bible. God's continued pursuit of people. So what do we do with this? You're reading this in your personal study. Probably not complicated. I I think what we take from this is, is if we see that God has always been relating to people personally and relationally, he relates to us personally and relationally. Just as God wanted his people back, his wife to return, his child back, just as Jesus wanted Mary and Martha and Thomas and Peter, God wants you. I think it's easy as as we start to study the Bible and see the themes and see the the great picture of of kingdom and God's glory and all the things going on in the story around us to get swept up in that and to, to see the greatness of the kingdom that we're a part of and to pray for that kingdom to come and to work for that kingdom to come and to live for the kingdom. And that is a driving force in the story of the Bible, right? I don't want to minimize that theme in any way. And we see the picture of God's glory and, and that he should be made great above every other God. In fact, there are no other gods. He's the only God and he has established everything and everything is for him. Every good and perfect thing comes from him and we want to see all the world recognize that. And that is absolutely a theme of the Bible. And we should see that and strive that and strive for that and love that. But in the midst of those great, big mission plot things going on in the story around us, Don't forget that the relationship side is just as important. In the midst of all that God is doing, all that he is calling you to, all that he's calling you to be a part of, he does not forget you. He will not leave you behind if you cannot keep up. He will go leave the 99 sheep and get you if you go astray. He wants you. He is not forgetting about you. And, and when we pursue lesser things, when we fail and we sin and we go after uh, career or money or wealth or comfort, the problem in that is not only that we have elevated something lesser above something greater and we are in error in that case. That situation is sort of like a love triangle where we have abandoned the one who is, you're reading the story, you can tell this is the one who really loves that person. This is the one that they really love. This is the one that really cares for them and will sacrifice for them. The other person they're pursuing, they're just worthless. They're just momentary. The resolution of our story when we sin is not just that we would get in line and obey, but that we would return to the one who loves us truly. That we would recognize that until this relationship is restored, the story cannot end. And God will not be satisfied and will not leave us. We will return because God loves us. I hope you've enjoyed this study. Again, as I said, uh, we will not be here for the next two weeks. Um, We'll be back on January 9th. So um, thank you all.